You're listening to a podcast by BI Norwegian Business School. In the early 1990s, the banking system in Norway was at the brink of collapse. Problems in the banking system had started to appear in the late 1980s when it was revealed that several regional and smaller savings banks were in major trouble due to a substantial increase in loan losses. The crisis became serious when in 1999 it became clear that all the three largest commercial banks in the country, who alone controlled almost 60% of total assets in the banking system, were all struggling to keep their head above the water. Loan losses were increasing every quarter and gradually evaporating the equity of the banks. To avoid the full collapse of the financial system, the Norwegian government decided to intervene massively. It injected large amounts of capital, estimated in 1992 to 3% of total GDP, and effectively took ownership of all the largest commercial banks. In total, more than 25 banks needed some form of capital injection. The crisis was systemic. The Norwegians were not alone in experiencing major banking troubles. Also, banks in Sweden and Finland were experiencing similar problems. And although solutions differed, also here the government had to step in and effectively save the banking system from full collapse. The severity of this Nordic crisis is evidenced by the fact that Carmen Reinhardt and Kenneth Rogoff in their influential This Time is Different book on financial crisis from 2009, listed them among the so-called Big Five crises in the banking system of advanced economies after World War II. The obvious question then is, what were the causes of this crisis? How did they become so substantial? My name is Espen Ekberg. I'm a professor of economic history at BI Norwegian Business School, and I'm hosting this podcast on financial bubbles, crashes, and crises. In today's podcast, we will discuss the Norwegian banking crisis of the early 1990s. In addition to the questions posed above, we talk about how the crisis was solved and also how it affected the development of the Norwegian banking system in the years after the crisis. Although we will focus on the banking crisis in Norway, we will also make comparisons with the more or less parallel crisis developing in Sweden and Finland. Interestingly, in the two remaining Nordic countries, Denmark and Iceland, no major banking crisis developed in the early 1990s. In these countries, however, the global financial crisis of 2007 and 2008 hit much harder than it did in Norway, Sweden and Finland. Was this a coincidence? As always, to help me out answering the questions posed, I have invited a guest to join me. For many years, the uh, head of the Norwegian Financial Surveillance Authorities, Björn Skogstad Åmo, um, for that, a leading advisor to the Prime Minister, Gro Harlem Brundtland, and also served several roles in the Ministry of Finance. And uh, welcome, Björn. Thank you. Uh, so today, of course, we are talking about the Norwegian banking crisis of the early 1990s. Uh, can you just start by telling us what were your roles during that uh, period? I had been uh, Secretary of State in the Ministry of Finance uh, during the uh, 80s, from 86 to 89. And then uh, I came back uh, in late 90 as head of staff uh, the Prime Minister's office. 
And uh, that was when the banking crisis took place. So you were in the midst of the action. Yes, sir. Yeah, so it would be really interesting to, to, to talk and we will go a little bit more into the details of this crisis a little bit later. But in the now before we do that, I would just want to talk a little bit about uh, the crisis in, in, you know, related to other types of crisis because I have picked this Norwegian banking crisis and we will also, as I indicated in the introduction, that there was not only a Norwegian crisis, it was really a Nordic crisis uh, affecting both the banking systems in Sweden and Finland heavily um, alongside the, the banking system in Norway. But um, is it possible to, in a way, you know, say something about how, how big a crisis this was? It was a very big crisis because it was the three major banks uh, which uh, went broken had to be taken over by the government and also some other banks. And there were a real fear that the banking system wouldn't function and other parts of uh, industry, other parts of society would suffer from that. Yeah, so 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 uh, you know, the fact that actually the three largest banks uh, in Norway were heavily affected this made this crisis really a massive one. Yes, yes. Uh, and how what about in uh, the other Nordic countries? Then I guess it was uh, more or less the same there. It was more or less the same in in Finland and Sweden. Uh, Denmark had some problems in the early 1980s and avoided uh, the crisis at the end of the 80s, early night. Yeah, and we will also talk later a little bit about Iceland, because they were also not in this period uh, so affected by the crisis period. So um, we'll come back to that. Um, okay, so we we just go back then and um, and start talking a little bit about why this crisis happened. Of course, it's a very difficult prob- uh, uh, problem to answer, and uh, I... Uh, we cannot go into all the details. Um, a famous explanation was, uh, you know, it was offered by the central bank uh, governor, Helmut Skånland. Uh, he talked about three things that were important here. It was uh, bad policies, bad banking and bad luck. And I think it's, it's, it's a good summary of, of, uh, of uh, what really were the main causes of this crisis. But uh, maybe you, Björn, could talk a little bit about what he meant when he said this, and then starting with the policy problems, what were so bad with the policies, uh, and where where did the problem start? Norway had regulated financial markets uh, from 1945 all through the early 80s uh, until 1984, in fact. And then uh, one took away the regulations which has kept the loans down, the loans exploded. Uh, you may say that uh, Norway had uh, not prepared itself for a free market because uh, when the banks uh, got the free possibility to expand their loans, they, they doubled in four years and they did not have the uh, uh, routines, the knowledge uh, on how to give credit on a responsible way. So many of 
loans given in this period uh, became exposed to the losses uh, not many years after. So, so, so there were some deregulations of the of the banking system. Yes, they were, uh, were uh, as you said, not well prepared. Uh, and uh, could you just explain a little bit more what you mean by that? Um, we, we had quantitative regulations uh, throughout the period. That is to say that banks were not allowed to grow by more than a certain percent, two percent, five percent, ten percent, and if they grew more, they had to pay uh, extra uh, deposit uh, premiums, things like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was obvious that this system became uh, more exceptional and that we had to do something. And uh, the question was, where should we start? Uh, and uh, I served with Mr. Per Klepper, who in 1980, uh, in 1980, had proposed tax reforms because he felt that you couldn't have a free credit market if you still had a full deductibility of interest rates and high marginal rates. But then the real interest rate became uh, very low. He wanted to reform the tax system first, but that was not accepted by the other political parties. And then uh, when we come to the early 80s, tax system was still not changed, but there was a pressure on the authorities that now they had to liberalize uh, the credit markets. And so it was done in 1984 and uh, with an explosion of credits from 84. Yeah, because that was my, you know, uh, really next question here. Because okay, it's one thing to deregulate what the banks can lend out, but then you, they need demand for loans. And what you're saying here is that because of the taxing system that was in existence, with you know real negative interest rates in in practice for many years, this created a massive demand for loans. Yes, the the, the interest rates could be deducted, uh, and the marginal tax rates. Uh, were something between 45 and, and 65 percent. So uh, it easily gave negative interest rates and, and a very high demand for loan. Okay, so, so, so bad policy coordination then, in a way, was, uh, was one of the main reasons that we got this, this uh, booming um, lending. Yes, one, one, one uh, uh, should have prepared a deregulation by changing the tax system first. And that was the philosophy of Mr. Klepper, but he didn't get the majority at the time in Parliament. And so it was postponed and we got everything in 84. But but what about other types of policies then, you know, uh, okay, so you deregulate the, cred- the credit quotas and uh, 
But uh, what about, you know, supervision of the banks? Were there no supervision of the banks? Um, yeah, but let's talk about that first. Um, the um, supervision of the banks uh, were fairly weak. It had been separated. There was one in uh, supervision for insurance, one for banking and one for securities. These were united in 1986. But that time, uh, the main challenge to uh, the markets were in the security market. So this new institution, Kreditelsyne, they gave priority to the security market. And in 86, 87, there were very little supervision of the banks. So, so alongside saying to the banks, now you can lend out, you know, as much as you want. <laughs> uh, uh, we're not going to stop you. Uh, at the same time, the number of, uh, you know, yeah, supervisions of the banks were greatly reduced. Yes, it was at a very low level in 86, 87. Mm -hmm. So not, not such a good combination, perhaps. No. Okay, but then, so so there were some, some coordination things in... in, um, in um, uh, in an, you know, within the poli political system that uh, uh, created the foundations for uh, what I called in introduction a, a credit boom. Uh, um, he talked about bad policies, but he also talked about bad banking. So, so I guess the banks responded to this opportunity, but uh, they did make made some mistakes as, as well. You know, the banks had in one way been spoiled in the regulated system. They could, they would always have customers. They didn't have to analyze the customers. They just got them in line and, and then uh, gave them loans. So the analytical capacity for credit risk was very low uh, in the banks uh, in the mid-80s. So... Uh, that was part of the bad policy that they had not been prepared to do a, a proper uh, credit analysis uh, of applications and, 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 and supervision of their own activities. Yeah, so, so, the, um, so in some way or other, you could have said that before you could have a liberalization, the banks had to prove that they actually could do credit risk analysis and, and they didn't do that. No, but the authorities didn't ask the, the right questions either. So, so uh, the, the broad conditions for having a sound credit market uh, were not analyzed and, and discussed very much. Okay, so so the 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 consequence of of all of this was um, that uh, you know credit uh, uh, boomed, banks were lending out more money than they have had ever done. The banks were competing with each other to become the biggest bank uh, in terms of lending, uh, and this of course was again reflected in in prices of assets such as housing. And you saw a big housing boom in the 80s. Um, uh, we talk about, you know, we're today about the rising housing prices. It makes us a little bit afraid every year. We hear 6 7% increase in prices, at least in Oslo. 
But how was the price development in the 80s? From uh, 1984 uh, to 1988, uh, there was a doubling of house prices, 100%. For, in four years? In four years. So, so that meant some 20 something, 25% each year. So it's, it's a totally different story from what we are seeing here today. Okay, and then, so we had bad policies. Um, we talked a little bit about bad banking. The banks were not prepared to to compete for loans. Their their systems for re- evaluating risk are not well developed. And so this, of course, also uh, caused this booming credit. Um fueling the boom in housing prices uh, and I guess also general consumption increased a lot. In in the first years, yes, you had a, an increase in private consumption of 10% in 1985. That's an all-time record. Never before, never after have we had a national growth of private consumption at such a level. I think I also heard that the, the number of cars sold. <laughs> yes, that was the highest ever in, in 1985. And, and it hasn't is, been... And then it took uh, nearly 20, nearly 30 years before we got back to the same level uh, as we had those years. So really this was a, a really a classic boom in, in, um, and fueled by, in, to a large extent, by, by bank credit. Um, but then... Um, uh, at some point, uh, this boom uh, turned around and became a bust, and crisis started to develop. And what were really the the, the factors that turned this from a boom to a bust? Uh, it was a mix. Uh, the authorities, parliament, and, and and government felt that they had to do something with the tax system. And they started to reform the tax system in 1986-87, reducing the very high level of interest rate uh, uh, deductions. And so this, together with the mere fact that people had taken up some very high loans, made for a, a decline in house prices in, in consumption in the years after uh, 88 and 89. So it started a decline. In the first years, that didn't hurt the banks so much. But then, eventually, and also with, with uh, other developments, the banks uh, had very big losses in uh, 91, 92. So, so basically the, the, the reform of the tax system caused the interest rates, the real interest rates to, to increase. And this affected, of course, uh, all the lenders that have been uh, taking up huge loads with, you know, practically paying no interest. Yes. Uh, and you, you had uh, people uh, keeping their well, it's uh, through restricting other consumption. They stopped buying cars, they stopped buying TVs, they stopped a lot of other things. They kept the house 
others uh, couldn't manage and had to sell the house. Mm -hmm. uh, so you had uh, a number of negative impacts uh, in the markets in the years uh, 89, 90. And then uh, came the realization by the banks that they had losses or will have losses and had to make the necessary precautions for that. Okay, I think this is interesting because, uh, of course, in this period, we did not only have a banking crisis, we had the crisis of the real economy with increasing unemployment. Uh, okay, the economy was still growing, but at very low levels for, for many years. Um, and and um, it's interesting because uh, why do we have sometimes recessions or declines in, in, in economic growth? And and we talk about the financial crisis in this course and how often is, you know, the problem uh, created by the financial system. And it seems to me that in this case, you had some bad policies, you had some bad banking causing a credit boom, causing asset price boom. And this eventually ended up in a crisis of the real economy. Yes. Uh, because you could have you could have the other way around. You could say that okay, financial crisis uh, are caused by you know problems created in the real economy. Huh? But uh, it seems to me that so, for example, today <laughs> there's a crisis in the economy, but it's not caused by the financial system. It's caused by the coronavirus. While in 2008 you had a crisis in the real economy, but it was obviously, at least most would say, it was obviously caused by by the operations of the financial system in, uh, to a large extent. To a large extent, but it also had real factors because uh, you had had the boom where people has been, had been buying houses and cars and, and uh, even those people who could manage their loans, they, they, they couldn't buy more cars, they couldn't buy more houses. So... so uh, the markets, the real market, had been saturated. Yeah, sure. So this is, um, uh, but this is something I try to, you know, draw up like this simple, uh, you know, framework. You could say is is uh, financial crisis causing crisis in the real economy, or are they caused by them? So, so I think it's, in this case, you could say, okay, uh, the the boom in Norway in during nineteen eighties partly fueled by bad banking, um, eventually was translated into an economic crisis that caused unemployment and, and, and economic hardship for many people. Yes, so, so it, it was a, a mix of mm -hmm. a crisis in the real economy and, and, and a crisis uh, in the financial system. Okay, so but then the third explanatory factor mentioned by Scotland, it's, it's the bad luck. So what, what does it mean when he says bad luck? We had uh, gradually uh, prepared the Norwegian economy for lower interest rates, uh, which would have been helpful both for uh, households managing their housing uh, loans uh, and for industries uh, investing in new jobs, things like that. But then came the fall of the Berlin Wall, which meant that Germany 
which was a dominating part of the European economy, had to spend a lot of money in the eastern part of Germany. They had to borrow money, which the German uh, authorities had not done uh, very much before. And so European interest rates went up. And when finally Norway was in a position where it could reduce its, its interest rates, it was met by higher interest rates in the international markets. So the scope for reducing interest rates in Norway disappeared in 1991, and uh, the costs for serving the loans remained very high, and then came the losses Companies couldn't keep on uh, running businesses. People sold their houses, uh, had losses. So uh, the increasing German and European interest rates, that was the bad luck. And now we are in 1991. 91, 92, yes. Yeah. Uh, so then you had a situation in Norway already with where employment, unemployment levels were already on their way up. And uh, then uh, there was no possibility to reduce interest rates uh, to help people who had debt. Exactly. And, but, but why is this, why this strong relationship between the interest rates in, in well, or the spending of Germany and the, the interest rates in Norway? The, the spending in Germany uh, meant higher interest rates in Germany. Germany being the leading part of the European market influenced the general interest level. So uh, while we had hoped for lower interest rates, which would have been very helpful to the Norwegian economy, uh, we were met by higher interest rates abroad, which prevented uh, us from lowering the interest. Okay, so so the, so the, basically the um, the possibilities of monetary authorities to you could not operate a low interest rate in Norway when it was high in, in Europe, and that was of I guess related to the exchange rate system. Yes, and 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 there was a policy of stable exchange rates, so you couldn't. Uh, that was. Uh, um, liberated uh, late uh, 91 mm. but at that time we already had the negative impact of higher interest rates okay so so then um, we had talked about bad policies uh, bad coordination of, of, of liberalization really uh, bad banking not Bag, banks not being well prepared to compete for for loans, to um, to evaluate credit risk, and then um, um, things the boom started to turn around eighty eight, eighty nine, um, and then in nineteen ninety one, uh, a struggling economy was met with continued high high interest rates. Is that an uh, summary of the situation yes and and it took 
some time uh, before the decline of the economy started in 88-89 uh, materialized in losses in the banking books that came only in 1991. Yeah, okay, and then let's, let's talk, talk a little bit about this, uh, this, uh, these losses then, because uh, clearly, uh, you, as you said earlier, this crisis affected all the major uh, large Norwegian commercial banks. Um, and what really was the, um, the main problem for, for, for these banks? Uh, was it uh, a liquidity problem or was it a solvency problem? It was uh, very much a solvency problem. Liquidity was not that bad. Uh, so when they had losses, uh, they had very little own funds to meet it. Uh, and in the first years... Uh, 88-89 authorities accepted banks uh, having lower own funds uh, in a way they, they uh, put away some of the requirements of the regulations to help the banks but then when we came to 1991 the markets did not accept that the banks had solar own funds. They had problem in financing. They they couldn't uh, get loans abroad with the very low own funds they had. There were no loans available domestically. Mm. Okay. So so but um, but the main issue uh, here was that banks were you know losing money. Their loan book was going sour. People were not paying back their loans. So they. Uh, major problems on the asset side of the of the balance sheet. Yeah, it started uh, partly in in the private household sector, but then in 1991-92, it became very clear in the business sector. During the boom, uh, a number of new shops, uh, new uh, warehouses, other basis for uh, selling goods had been set up and then when consumption uh, stalled or declined they got into severe problems and so the losses on the commercial property side were the biggest uh, and they hit the banks very hard like in, in, in 91 92 Okay, so so the all the major Norwegian banks then were experiencing this solvency crisis, and I guess uh, sitting in the you know, at the prime minister office or in the, the financial minister minister of finance, uh, you must have been increasingly afraid what would happen with these large banks if they collapsed. So so what were you thinking? What to do? In in uh, December, nineteen ninety. Uh, only uh, one or two months after Ohalm Wundland came back as Prime Minister, we got uh, reports from Kreditlsyne, uh, from uh, others, that the banks had big losses. And then uh, we set up working with what should we do. So uh, between Christmas and New Year, 
1990, we pre prepared a package of a, a government uh, bank uh, financing fund, which uh, became public on the 10th of January with a proposition to Parliament. So we were able to prepare the measures before the markets knew that Norwegian banks had serious problems. So, uh, and the Parliament, uh, even though Labour had no majority, they cooperated uh, willingly and, and the legislation was passed in February the same year and a new bank uh, fund set up. Um, so there was a, a, a this fund set up in 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 January, and um, a proposed in January, yeah. but set up uh, March. Uh, so so, but the problems for the banks then, it, you said they had too low own funds and they were losing money on the on the asset side, and so they uh, somehow needed uh, new uh, to increase their own funds, new equity. And yeah. was this the, 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 what the, this fund was supposed to do? That was the main purpose. Uh, there, there were no willingness in the private market to put risk capital into the banks. Uh, there was a, a, a very uh, low mood <laughs> banks. So the only alternative to activate the banks was that the government put own funds into the banks. And they started doing that uh, in '91. Yes, uh, with all the all the ma three major banks, huh? Yeah, it was first Credit Kassen uh, and Focus, and then DNB. All the three major commercial banks got funds from the from the government. And then this eventually put the government in an ownership position. Then in the banks, was that the development happening? Yes, and and but at the same time. Uh, the, the ministries involved, they were conscious that they should have an arm's length distance between the daily management of credit decisions in the banks and what uh, the government or the ministers did. So uh, the main instrument was that they appointed members of the boards of the banks. Uh, but in fact, this meant that there was a change of both boards and management in in the largest commercial banks. So they used this newly acquired ownership to uh, push forward for change inside the banks? Yes, but uh, with a consciousness that the ministries or the politicians should not uh, be left with all the decisions of the banks. So there should be an arm's length distance uh, between the ownership and the running of the banks. Mm. So, so, but uh, a major uh, issue of, of I guess, uh, of conflict during this period was what should happen to the existing uh, owners of equity in the banks. And um, and can you tell us a little bit about the the thing, 
things that were discussed during that period because eventually all those existing uh, stock owners were wiped out. Yes, uh, there was uh, clear opinion uh, in the ministries and uh, in the government that those owners had not fulfilled their obligations as owners of the banks. They had let the banks uh, develop a loss-making policy. So uh, we don't felt, don't felt any pity for them. So, so uh, it was a very clear decision when it comes to Credit Kassen and, and Focus that uh, they had to lose their value. There was some discussion on, on, on DNB. The largest bank. I the mean. largest bank, mm. yes. Uh, but uh, eventually uh, also those shares had to be uh, nilled. Yeah, they were, yeah. So, so and then eventually you had the situation after this crisis that uh, the Norwegian government were the majority owner of Fokusbank and Kreditkassen and owned something like 80% of the of DNB. So major uh, government ownership of all the largest Norwegian uh, commercial banks. Um, was but, this, but that is... Uh, at there was a consciousness about this, so it was important to keep an arm's length distance. So the owners' uh, decisions, the only they made was to find people to the boards of the banks. And they chose people who had experience, some would be politically on the left, most would be politically to the right. The point was that they had abilities to be on the board of a bank. And so uh, it was not the ministries, it was not the government who should take the decisions on who should get credit. It was the board and management of the banks themselves. Yeah, and we also had this creation, the bank, uh, the government investment Banking Investment Fund, where, where in practice we're, you know, um, organizing the ownership on on behalf of the, of, uh, the Norwegian government. Yeah. And um, it was a separate entity uh, from the Ministry of Finance. Yes, and that mm. was to keep arm, keep arm length. So they, they would have dialogues with the banks. They will uh, find members to the boards. And, and give feedback on, on issues. And at the same time, they would have an overview which would be helpful both to the banks and to the ministry. And um, I'm not sure how how, uh, how different this is from other countries, but it seems to me that uh, this decision then to you know save, save the banks by injecting equity and then do not... Uh, take any you know bad loans out of the banks or creating you know what has been normal in many countries to create a bad bank create the bad to take the bad loans out of the balance sheet and let the government take care of that bank but in this case basically what uh, you did was to say to the banks you have to um, solve this mess that you have uh, come into and learn from it wasn't is that true exactly uh, it would be important that the people in the bank uh, who should also evaluate future credit 
that they learned from the loss-making activities. So to go through loss-making uh, loans, uh, look at what is left, what shall we do uh, with the companies, was a very useful process of lessons, uh, which was useful when they later should make new loans to new uh, donors. So if you had, yeah. So if you had removed all the bad loans from from the banks, and then there would be less learning yes. possibilities. In in other countries like Sweden, they put them in a separate entity. Uh, the bad loans. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, which should make it easier to run the the the, the new bank in a way. But uh, it it was also. Uh, less learning when they didn't have these loss-making loans. Okay, so so but after so in '93, I think you could say that things turned around and um, the general economy uh, interest rates came down. General economy started to grow again, and the banks uh, uh, improved their their situation and losses were you know thing of the past in many ways. Uh, and you started working as the head of the financial surveillance authorities, and uh, during the 90s and 2000s, you were uh, you had a lot of knowledge about what the banks were doing to avoid new crises. And so, I guess the, the um, well, if the idea of the solution in 91, 92, um, inject equity and let the banks, uh, you know, yeah, uh, deal with their own problems to learn from them. Obvious question is, um, what happened? Did they learn from their failures? And what did the surveillance authorities do to avoid future problems? The, the banks learned a lot. But uh, when I came in as head of the uh, FSA, uh, I felt it is important to make better systems of the lessons learned. So we had programs interviewing the banks looking into the surveillance they made, what were the signals that uh, could be seen for a, a, a loan that went went bad, uh, became loss-making. And uh, we also started programs to monitor housing market, uh, uh, other markets where there were risks and, and what we had learned was that uh, some of the risks in the markets could not easily be understood by the individual bank. It would be a part of the responsibility of the authorities, uh, of the supervisor, of the Bank of Norway, to identify macroeconomic risks and try to keep them at an acceptable level. Like typically, the rise of housing prices. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in addition to uh, banks learning obviously from their mistakes, you found it necessary to increase macro. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, so at this authority, the surveillance authorities should should um, help the banks in a way, having you know uh, a view of the macro risks that were uh, out there. Um, 
And then the banks themselves, in a way, dealt with their micro risks, you could say. But then also, I guess, because a major problem in, during the banking crisis had been the low levels of, of own funds. And this was strengthened as well, wasn't it? Well, the, this uh, government fund uh, supplied uh, the banks with own funds. And then, uh, as the banks started to uh, become profitable in 1993 do you remember, you know, what, what kind of share uh, uh, were of own funds did they hold in 1990-91 compared to, say, 2001-2003? At, at the uh, lowest level um, in, in uh, 1991, they were down at 2% or something. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then uh, when it came to, to 93, 94, they were 2, 7, 8 percent. So already then? Yes. But that was because uh, they got uh, injected money mm. from the public fund. Mm -hmm. But then after that, there were set limits to how low these funds could be? or Yeah, it, it, it was uh, targeted that they should increase and, and it was a, a part of... of uh, the supervisory policy of uh, FSA, and there was a general good dialogue between the supervisor and the ministry on the importance of increasing own funds. So, so basically, increasing the solidity of, of yes, banks yes. to to prevent uh, or to make this this financial system more stable and less prone to crisis. Yes, and and knowingly. Uh, admitting that to build own funds, that mean that that meant that uh, interest rates on deposits uh, would be a little lower, uh, interest rates on loans a little higher than what they uh, been else. Mm -hmm. But the, the signals from the authorities that the banks should give priority to solidity was very important. And I guess you could say that the Norwegian banking system got a, a major test um, in 2008, 2009, when we had the global financial crisis. And could you just explain a little bit about how the Norwegian banks were doing during that crisis and why you think they, well, I, can, I guess I can say they did quite well. Yes, we had rebuilt a, a good level of own funds and then uh, the government... Uh, cooperation with the Bank of Norway made financing facilities that they could uh, become less dependent on the market and so they were able to maintain lending at a reasonably high level in Norway in 2009-2010 and uh, while most other countries had a clear decline in their GNP 
Norway could keep up uh, at level. It's a small reaction uh, in uh, 2008, but then it climbed very quickly back up. But and then the number of lo uh, losses also in in Norwegian banks were were yeah very small during this period. Relatively small, but that was because the economy as such uh, didn't decline the same way as we saw in other Western countries. The the, uh, the government could use some of the oil money. Uh, the the uh, government came with a package uh, in the winter uh, of 2009, stimulating the economy uh, with the use of money from the oil fund. And, and, and uh, so, so Norway saw economic growth coming already in, in 2009, 2010, while in the EU, they didn't get back to the pre-crisis level before one or two years ago. Um, it's interesting to 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 draw this this uh, parallel between 2008 and 1992. If you look at the Nordic countries, then because uh, what we saw in the early 90s was that the banking system of Norway, Sweden, and Finland were experiencing major problems, while as we mentioned, Denmark and Iceland less so. But in 2008, things were, you know, in a way the opposite. You had the Swedish, Norwegian, Finnish banks doing fairly well, uh, while Danish banks, and especially Icelandic banks, then, uh, were uh, uh, experiencing major problems. And I guess this must have something to do with the, the risk-proneness of these banks in different countries, that while Norwegian, Swedish, Finnish banks had not taken on so much risk, in the build-up to the financial crisis, it was different in in Denmark and Iceland. Yes, uh, having a crisis uh, had a lesson to to uh, for the Norwegian banks, and 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 that lesson hadn't been learned the same way in Denmark and Iceland. So you think it's, uh, it's that way? So that uh, ac actually the, this crisis of ninety one ninety two was so big and was creating so much, you know. Um, yeah, people working in Norwegian bank, they didn't want to go back there. So they really changed the way they perceived and dealt with risk differently from Denmark or Iceland? It was a mix because uh, it was lessons learned in the individual banks, but it was also the supervisor and the ministry who had learned lessons from, from, uh, uh, from the crisis. And they... Uh, accepted that banks should keep own funds at a higher level, shouldn't take out so so much uh, money for the owners, things like that. So, so you could say, there's this saying, don't let a good crisis go to waste. <laughs> uh, in a way, you could say that this was, uh, this was something that happened. Uh, they did not let it go to waste. In, um... And they, they uh, I think... All the authorities were very keen that we should not have another banking crisis. And then uh, to keep own funds, very important. And, and you may have noticed that this year 
the government has been very keen that the banks should increase their own funds and not pay out too high dividends. Mm-hmm. It's the same logic, yeah? Yes, you, yeah. yes. But that, that makes me to my fi- my final question, really, because we, earlier podcast here we had a guest from, from, from a bank, from DNB, Erua Hoff, um, who has been working on risk assessment in banking a large part of his career. And um, I asked him if he thought that the situation in banks today was, uh, how, how was it? Was, were you, are you afraid for a new crisis? And he said, no, he was quite optimistic <laughs> on, um, on behalf of Norwegian banks. And I, um, I said to him, well, that's probably because you have worked with this, but you have to be. But uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? What is, the, of course, we can't see into the future, but... Uh, Are the Norwegian banking system, um, uh, is it, uh, will there be a crisis in the near future or do you think they are well prepared? I think they are generally healthy and with good own funds. uh, And they are aware that they have to be careful in in their lending policies. So so, uh, with a Corona are still developing. We we cannot rule out uh, problems, but the banks are in a better shape to handle such crises than than they have been for 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 many many years. Okay, that's I think that's a good way to stop uh, this this episode on the Norwegian banking crisis of the early 1990s, also talking a little bit about the Nordic banking crisis um, uh, or the crisis in the other Nordic countries uh, that were developing in at the same time um, and also drawing some parallels to um, to the situation in, in 2008. Uh, we will talk later uh, or more about the 2008 crisis in a later episode. Um, but until then, Thank you for listening and thank you Bjorn for coming. Thank you. This is a BI production. Listen to more podcasts. Go to bi.no/podcasts.